0: Welcome to the next podcast from Millinery Info. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Thank you for joining me today for this episode with Louise McDonald. Louise has been a milliner for over 30 years with her studio based in the iconic Nicholson building. As you may have learned from our last episode, Louise and I have worked closely together for a number of years. So I hope that in this discussion, you'll hear about our dynamic and learn a little bit more about her millinery. I'd like to thank our wonderful podcast sponsors for making this episode possible. The Essential Hat, That Millinery, Hat Academy, Hatter's Millinery Supplies, Lifted Millinery, Hat Mags, Marie D'Anthony Millinery, Louise McDonald Milliner, The Millinery Association of Australia, and Hats by Laco. You can find a link to each of their businesses in our show notes, either in your podcast app or on our website. If you've been enjoying listening to this podcast series, I invite you to show your support through Patreon. This is how you can sponsor either a podcast or be a supporter. You can find out more or sign up at www.patreon.com forward slash I'd just like to take a moment to thank our recent supporter Patreons who have joined us. With each podcast episode, we share with you some images on our social media. But if you head over to our website, you can see some more behind the scenes images relating to this episode. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Louise. Thank you so much, Louise McDonald, for joining me today on Millinery Info. It's fantastic to have you back as part of the podcast series um our first podcast you were the first episode we spoke about the um pieces you had in the National Gallery of Victoria um but I thought it'd be wonderful to have you back on to hear a bit more about your millinery story um so let's let's go back to the beginning how did you become involved with millinery
1: oh great well thanks Lauren I'm delighted to be invited back again thank you very much um how did I get involved with millinery well that's many years ago um probably about you know thirty or more years ago and um I was living in London at the time. I am um originally from Melbourne um australia but I'd, I'd gone to london and i was working over there for the city of westminster um, i saw a short course in millinery advertised in this little um paperback book that came out once a year for floodlight that advertised as short courses so um i um enrolled and went along and it was one of the short courses that was taught by rose corey um, down in south london and of course i was um, immediately um addicted to and so I did one term, and I, I really enjoyed it, and so I enrolled in another term and then another term, and so as many of um, your listeners will realize, it is quite an addictive thing um, millinery you just sort of get that sort of creative buzz. so I kept um, enrolling in those courses, and then I met a, a couple of um, costume designers, and I sort of became interested in costume and I met a costume a theatrical milliner, and I, I was thinking more about that and so then i um, Applied to, for a, a diploma in um, costume interpretation at Wimbledon School of Art, and I used the hats that I'd made in my courses with Rose as my sort of portfolio. And um, to my surprise, um, I got in, and uh, which was um, great. So that was you know, a career change for me from working in local government to a, a more sort of creative profession, which is really you know what I wanted wanted to do. So um at Wimbledon I um, you know, studied, you know, tailoring and dyeing and costume production and that sort of thing. And of course I also studied um millinery there. Um and then when I finished that course um, we had an end-of-year show and you know, I sent letters around to anyone and everyone who was a, a milliner in, in the UK asking for a job and I got all these letters sent back to me and saying, no, thanks very much, I can't offer you anything. And then I got one letter back that said, yes, we're looking for a milliner. Oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. And that was uh, from Cosprop, which was um, is a, a period uh, costume company in London where they um, specialise in, in period um, costume for film and television and also theatre, and um, uh, they also came to the end of year show at Wimbledon, so they'd sort of seen my work on display, which was all hats. Um, So then I worked for them um, for five years, and I learnt a lot there, really. Um, You know, I had a chance to look at all the previous hats that had been made for different productions, so I could pick them up and turn them inside out and have a really good look at how they were made. And uh, there was another freelance milliner who worked for them, Lil Scott, and she was, you know, had years of experience. And so whenever I got stuck, she was also very helpful. She was freelance and worked off-site, but I was there as their full-time milliner. And um, yeah, so that was a really great learning experience, and also a great sort of learning experience in terms of, you know, historical millinery and and, um, uh, period hats. Um, And so uh, yeah, that's how I initially got in, and then I was there for. working for Cosprop for five years and then I returned to Melbourne which is where I'm originally from and I um I found a little studio in the, in the Nicholas building which is where I still am in the Nicholas building and uh for the you know for the first five years of my career I, I hadn't done any fashion hats it was purely um costume and and theatre um and uh but there was some very good um theatrical millineries in Melbourne when I returned like Philip Rose and Rose Hudson and Deborah Burson's all very and they're still around and and very um accomplished milliners and I just sort of felt like there wasn't <laughs> there wasn't enough work to keep everyone happy and so I thought I, I need to sort of sidestep into um, fashion millinery and of course the Melbourne Cup which is the the big sort of race meeting that we have um, each year is you know has very much been part of my sort of um uh, my annual sort of calendar I guess Uh, and that has been you know what I've spent a lot of the last 25 years um, working on so fashion hats and very very little costume work so yeah that's that's how I got to where I am yeah and when you were with
0: um learning from Rose Corey were you already interested in making the historic period influence pieces or was it based on learning particular skills what were you making when you were learning
1: yeah no there wasn't any sort of historical um work there. Um, it was more sort of, you know, fashion hat, but I was learning all sorts of different techniques and working with buckram and with a tree, um, you know, felt straws. Cinemae had just sort of come onto the market then. So, you know, learning to work with cinema. Oh no, had cinema come onto the market then? Mm, barely, barely. So I don't think I made a cinema hat with rose actually. Um, different sort of vintage materials, straw cloth. Um, so it's of learning, learning the basics. And, um, yeah, so that was terrific. Mm.
0: And working at Cosprot, what were some of the, the productions you got to take part in? Do you remember or are they all just a, a blur of
1: hats? Well, there were hundreds at the time, but I can barely remember. I mean, the, the two ones are the most sort of memorable, I guess, are the um, BBC production of the House of Elliot, a BBC production um, about two uh, sisters who set up a fashion house in the 1920s and, and that you know, got lots of um, airing. Um, so I worked on those uh, three theories, and of course, Pride and Prentice with um, Jennifer Ely and, and Colin Firth. That was, I think, the last production that I worked on before I left. Cheese and Worcester, um, Poirot, uh, Poirot rather, Shining Through, um, so, oh, quite a few Merchant Ivory films because um, the owner of the business, um, Cosprop, is John Bright, who's a, a well recognised costume designer and uh, uh, who designed um was costume designer on lots of the Merchant and film.
0: and how did that process work were you did you get to consult on how that piece might look or was it pretty prescriptive with a sketch or how did that those pieces come to life
1: Lauren in the um five years that I was working there I think that I might have seen three sketches <laughs> so and I think um Normally, um, it was um, just sort of a verbal um, description or there might have been sort of um, photocopies of original um, fashion plates um, or from original sort of, you know, fashion magazines of the particular era that the uh, series was set. And a few little notes from the costume designer pointing to a particular hat with a few fabric swatches stapled to the bit of paper saying something like this. and um yeah so they seemed to be quite um you know it depended on the designer but um sometimes you'd have a lot of creative freedom and and sometimes you know not so much um but there was always um you know once you you'd of course discuss the materials with the designer sometimes they'd have specific ideas or i'd make suggestions and then you would get a piece ready for the fitting and the um after would come into pre-fitting with the the costume designer and you'd sort of um, Being the fitting to work out, you know, where to take the piece and what needed to be altered or changed, and uh, go away and finish it, and then it'd be packed off in a box and sent off, so I'd never get to see it um, until it was, you know, on the screen. So, um, unlike I guess in the theatre where you might go to a, um, a dress rehearsal or, or something, um, I, I I wasn't, uh, I didn't participate in that because one, I did very few theatrical. Um, worked on very few theatrical productions. It was mostly film and television, and um, yeah, there isn't any dress rehearsal there. So, yeah.
0: Did you watch the series if you knew a hat was going to be in it?
1: Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully the dresser had put the hat on the right way round. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, but it was fun. It was fun and exciting, and um, it, was a, it was a great place to work. And um, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. And, um, you know, and, and really that's where I, I learnt, um, you know, got, got a good sort of grounding of, you know, historical sort of um, hats and, and millinery and, um, you know, got much more of a, an idea, yeah.
0: yeah. And coming to Melbourne and shifting into a fashion-focused um, creative pursuit, um, what were some of the adaptations you had to make to your, um, your making? Oh,
1: gosh. Lots. <laughs> well, one, um, I I became the designer <laughs> rather than you know in theatrical millinery. The costume designer is the the designer, but in and you're working from you know someone else someone else's sub concept. Um, but uh, as a you know as a fashioner, I had to come up with the um, you know the designs, and then of course you know I'm working sort of directly with the the customer so working out how to work with the customer and my god that was a learning curve I can tell you um, and you know it probably comes more naturally to um, some people than other people but um, you know that sort of you know negotiation um, sort of process with the client to work out what they want and um, what I wanted to do and I think at the start um, really I let the customer lead me but now I would say that I lead the customer (laughs) Um, in terms of their choices and knowing what I can do and what I want to do and what I think suits them Um, so yeah there was a big um, learning curve in in that regard. Another difference there was that you know I was working with different materials so the materials that I would use in theatrical millinery um, were sort of often different to the materials that I'd use in um, fashion. So with fashion hats, I would be using cinema, parasitical straws. Um, I did a little bit of a felt collection. Um, but uh, when I was working in normally, I never used cinema. I'd never used, used parasitical straw because, you know, they were wanting authenticity and those sorts of materials weren't round in, you know, 1815 or, or the 1920s or, or well, parasitical might've been around in the 1920s. But, um, yeah, so I'd be using instead I'd be using straw braid or making fabric covered hats or using sort of a tree covered in fabric or military buckram or um, yeah that sort of thing. So yeah, that's a, um, another sort of different different sorts of materials. Yeah.
0: When you launched as a fashion label, what was your approach to that?
1: (laughs) When I launched as a fashion label, what was my approach? My approach was, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm doing, but I need to make a living from this. I need some money. (laughs) How do I get customers? So it was a little bit sort of disorganized. Um, If I were to do it again, I would say that I should have you know, done some business courses and um, some marketing courses and, and had a much more sort of um, methodical approach, um, but I sort of made it up as I, I um, went along. Um, I started off, uh, I was doing a little bit of theatrical work when I came back, so there was a little bit of money coming in there, but then I just, sort of, I had no clients, so I, I started off um, in sort of some upmarket market, selling my hats there. Of course, um, you know, they had to be sort of, you know, fairly inexpensive, but I'd have a range of cheaper ones, some sort of pre-blocked bases that were just sort of decorated and other ones that I'd made myself, um, trying to sort of trade on my house of experience, which back then everyone has heard of. Um, and so I did get a few customers through that. And through that, I also learned how to work with clients and customers. Um, I also, um, my partner, who I think I was with them, was that stage he comes from a sort of a small biz- business background in my family everyone has been employed and i'm the only self-employed person in my family but my partner everyone in his family was uh, self-employed so he gave me some um really uh useful tips about you know how to sort of, you know build up a mailing list and a, you know a database i don't think we used that word back then but anyway um so ha- how to um promote myself a little bit he had some, some good tips there um, and, uh, I did get a little bit of advice, about, you know, about, um, counting and that sort of thing, but really it was, um, step-by-step step making it up as I, I went along. And of course made a few mistakes, not mistakes, but, you know, I had a few learning curves there when I think I'd do that differently. Uh, but you know, I learned along the way.
0: And the pieces that you were making when you first launched, what did those
1: look like? Mm, what did they look like? Oh, well, I will tell you what they didn't look like. They don't look like the sort of <laughs> they don't look like the sort of work that I do now. Um, they, um, I think now, I think that people tell me, and I, I think that it's true that I do have a sort of signature look. But my signature look really had not developed then. So it was I was new to sort of fashion millinery, so I was really. Um, that was a little bit of a hodgepodge. <laughs> but you know, I might have used lots of feathers on a few pieces, but I don't use feathers at all now. Well not at all, but hardly ever use feathers now. I hadn't I hadn't sort of got my yeah, I hadn't got my look established yet. So I'm just trying to think of some of the ones very 90s looking. <laughs> big, big top hat crowns, big brims. Um I've always loved the beret though. I was doing berets back then and I still love berets, bigger brims. Yeah.
0: Yeah. and as you worked through discovering and defining your aesthetic, how, was there a moment when you're when you created a piece and that was it, and you're like, this is this is what I want to be making, or is it an evolving process?
1: It was an evolving process, but I think that what I started sort of moving towards was um, back then. The trim on a racewear hat was feathers or flowers and journalists would bring you up and say oh what's in season this year feathers or flowers and you think oh my god <laughs> is there an alternative and, and at, at some stage i i guess it's with cinema uh, but i can also recall i was using some straw back braids at the time i started using just the straw or the braid to make my sort of trim on the hat and I like to make a trim that had sort of movement and flow to it. And I think that that was the start of my involving into my own sort of, you know, my own look. I think still my hats, they tend to be sort of fairly simply embellished. So not lots of feathers and flowers, often sort of trimmed in the same, you know, material that I've used to make the hat out of and with some sort of sculpture um, that sort of flows.
0: And what have been some of the key successful projects or events that you've been involved with that have been a great success for your business
1: um look there's not you know singular sort of great big events but there's there are a few and um or well, there's more than a few actually that that all add up to something and i think um one of the uh things has been uh where i've teamed up with another business another created business so the first. One that I teamed up with was a fabric shop called Her Story that was in Little Collins Street in Melbourne, run by um, two women. And they sold beautiful fabrics. And they also had a sort of an on-site uh, designer, dressmaker, tailor, who made up the um, fabrics in the store. So they either sold the fabrics or they, customers came in and, and they had an outfit made. I teamed up with them. And so I would make hats for some of their clients who you know needed a hat. And, um, yeah, I got some very good customers from that. One still come to be now, sort of 25 years later. Um, and then I teamed up with uh, another local designer, Victoria Loftus. Her label isn't around anymore. She's now got a, a, a shop in um, country Victoria called Manto Noir and has a, another uh, label. But Victoria made designed design, beautiful clothes, and she has a lovely shop in um, little Collins Street in, in Melbourne again. And... Um, I would um, make hats and she'd sell them in a, her shop. But he had beautiful clothes. She really liked my hats, and um, it was actually really fun collaborating with her because she would come to my studio, and um, I would have out a whole lot of materials, and often some vintage materials that I would have got from Job Warehouse, which is this old sort of fabric shop that's no longer around up at the top of Burke Street in Melbourne. And um, and bits and pieces that I collected over the years. And so I I had no idea what her collection would look like, but she would um, choose materials. Now it's like three different materials that I would certainly not normally choose to put together, but she'd choose them and she'd say, oh, can you make a hat out of this? Um, You know, something that's soft and flowing. And I think, oh, right, okay. So soft and flowing was the description. And I had three materials that I wouldn't normally combine together, but it really, you know, it led me off in um, a direction, you know that I really enjoyed and forced me to sort of be sort of um, creative. And, and, yeah, so working with her was um, terrific. And I worked with her for several years. And, of course, um, when her shop closed down, I had clients from her come to me. Sometimes her clients would come to me directly if they wanted a specific hat um, for an outfit. And then um, I was going to say more recently, but no, it's not more recently. <laughs> it was about 12 years ago, and it's collaborating with uh, Hugo Boss in um, Australia and um, designing hats to go with their collections. And, of course, um, with all those, you know, which has been great for me and that's brought more clients my my way, but with all of those, with her story and Victoria Loftus and and Hugo Boss, it was a mutual um, respect that we had for each other. So they had something that I wanted, clients, and I, I had something that they wanted, you know, some beautiful hats. So they were great at selling my hats and I loved trying to sort of please them as much as possible. So those sort of three connections have been a good sort of uh, connections throughout my career. Um, but I don't do this anymore because it's just so exhausting going out and doing what some people might know as a, you know, a trade show or something, but, you know, going to, you know, racing events and having stands there and showing your hat so you get sort of more customers that way.
0: What did else? you do any trips internationally to branch branch out your customer base?
1: Yes, I did. I would go to um, Dubai for, uh, it was probably about five years um, that I'd, in March, I'd go to Dubai and sell my hats um, at a shopping mall there in the lead up to the Dubai World Cup. So that was always um, a good thing to do. And of course, that was in March and my busy time of the year is uh, October and November. So, you know, it balanced, you know, quite, quite well with the peak season here in Melbourne to go um, to Dubai. I mean, and Lauren, I have to say that another thing that did help me in launching my career was Ah, uh,
0: Yes, yes. And we should mention that as well. Because- <laughs> and did you know? That's what this platform. This is how this platform started, isn't it?
1: Let's let's get it from
0: the source of the truth. How did Millinery Info start?
1: (laughs) Well, I have to say that it started with my partner who works in IT, and he he said you should set up a a, sort of an education website. And oh, you know, and I said, what the what are you talking about? Anyway, so he sat down at the computer and he got this website Millie.info, going, and he started getting a dictionary together. And this is before social media was around, Um, and. putting up a few different things and then I started um, taking photos at different sort of had events and posting it on millinery.info and then we started interviewing um, milliners from around the world not on podcasts but um, just uh, uh, written sort of interviews um, with the milliners from around the world and um, at that stage um, there were no other sponsors not like all your lovely sponsors that you um have now, and I was the only sponsor, and I feel that that really um, was a, a benefit to me in terms of um, getting my name known sort of on, on um, a more global level rather than um, an australia wide or, or touring state sort of level. So I do have to thank Millinery.info and my partner and, and you for taking the reins and taking it to the next level. So that that did make a, a difference. And that was yeah, that was before social media was around. And then when social media came in, you know, people could see other people's sort of um, hat photos on social media. But before that. Firewall Cup and the Melbourne Cups and things I'd um, be out there some of you may remember me taking photos if you lined up to go in fashions on the field competitions and that sort of thing and posting them on on the on the website so you know lots of other things I think sort of help help me along the way having good people work for me and don't go red but Lauren Lauren who was interviewing me also worked for me for it was about seven years Lauren yes (laughs) and um (laughs) you know it's you know those of you who do employ someone else when you've got someone who is your right hand person and you can sort of rely on um so so heavily and so well it really does make a difference to you being able to um run your business and being able to sort of focus on things so in lucky with you and I've had two other people work with me in my previous um earlier years who it's been it's been um, definitely helped and and I can also think of a couple of people who've come and done extended periods of work experience with me Miriam oh gosh we, lo- we loved having you come and do work experience with us that um, that spring so it's all added to the mix and I'm very grateful because I couldn't do it on my own
0: well it was an hassle honor it and we had a lot of fun mm. A lot of fun. Um, moving on from me though, because we're here talking about no, you. I'm no, sorry about that. I
1: couldn't, I couldn't mean you at all, but you know,
0: no, no, no. And um, today you do a lot of teaching and sharing of your skills to um help the. I was going to say next generation of milliners, but um, helping milliners continue to establish their skill set. How did you first start teaching?
1: Oh well, when I um came back from London, I. had I was uh, asked to present it at the CAE, which is the Council of Education. So I gave a little talk there. Of course, I was abs- I was so nervous. Uh, and a couple of other places, the National Gallery, the members of the National Gallery asked me to give a talk. And so I started off just giving a little bit of a talk about my sort of theatrical experience. And then I started uh, teaching practical classes at the Council of Edu- Education, and then it went on from there. So I've taught at Kangan Institute, which is our local Tate College here. Central Gippsland TAFE in Morwell, Swinburne TAFE. I've taught some costume millinery there for about twelve years. Or well, one artist in residence program at Box Hill Senior Secondary College, which was really fun. And um, I now run my own courses in in my studio. And I've been to, to Europe and America, like, um, America once to teach at Millinery Meetup, and I'm going to be teaching with them again this year, but it's going to be online in uh, Europe with Lena Stein and Pierre and Pierre Millinery Supplies. And, and then with Hat Academy more recently in the last couple of years that I've, I've, I've really enjoyed teaching online, yeah, through video courses. You know, so I've been doing it for about 20 years. And I have to say, I have to, you know, be honest with you that I probably wasn't a very good teacher when I started. I really had my trainer wheels on, but um, I feel like I had like you do with anything if you a practice I have um, learned some more over the years and I feel much more confident in my presentation and the way that I can um, transfer knowledge to people now I've enjoyed it and and you know one of the things that I don't forget is um, you know when I was first learning millinery with Rose Corey and you know I loved it it was just such a buzz and I it was just so exciting and it was just lovely being so cre- to be able to sort of you know be creative like that and so nice to be able to pass on that sort of joy or give people, give people that joy themselves. And people do, as you know, lots of people who are listening to this podcast will know, it is, um, you know, it's really nourishing. It's really nourishing, creatively nourishing. And um, yeah, I love it.
0: So with Hat Academy and teaching for your students, how do you decide which skills or which techniques you'd like to present and share?
1: yeah, i've I've loved working with Elaine and her team at Academy for in the last I think two or three years. So Elaine looks at my work and makes suggestions um, of techniques um, that I use and uh, to see whether I'd be interested in sharing them with other people. Um, and she might come up with some suggestions of you know how that might be structured. and uh, and then I sort of come back with it either thinking, yes, that's a great idea, or why don't we do it this way or how about we do this, or but I think this might be. so we we work it out between each other um, as to, you know, what, what we might present. And of course, you know, she's got um, a great um, bank of students and she knows what her students of needs are and what they're looking for. And, um, yeah, so we work it out um, between each other that way. It takes, you know, quite a bit of um, preparation to get the classes ready, um, which is great. I like to be prepared. I like to be prepared and organized. So it's at least about a month of solid work of, you know, getting samples made and getting ready for the filming. And then, um, I sort of, you know, Elaine and her teams have filmed the course, and then they edit it and and work out the release. But they provide um, really good support to students in terms of support after students bought the course, in terms of newsletters and support groups and um, chat groups and um, assistance with particular questions. So yeah, it's a great setup.
0: What are some of the most important skills that you believe students should be establishing when they're learning and training?
1: So many answers to that question, I just sort of don't know where to start. Um, because I mean, first of all, I was thinking, oh, you know, you know, the basics, you know, how to manipulate wire, how to block, you know, or how to work with a flat pattern. I thought, oh gosh, it's not just that. You really, um, if you're wanting to become a milliner, really, you need marketing skills, you need business skills. But you know, so my sort of initial response is, you know, you need to get an overview before you start. You know, presenting yourself as a, a milliner in a business, you need to sort of get an overview. But then I think, look, there's some people who have set up, they've got marketing skills and business skills, and focus on one particular sort of material or technique, who've made great success in their business. Difficult for me to say. I mean, I'm a, also I'm a milliner who sort of uses, you know, relies on my sort of traditional training. Um, but you know, there's there's always new ways of um, doing things. So um, yeah, that that's, you know, it's a difficult one to answer. But what I um, should say is, not should say, but sort of want to say is that, you know, when you ask me what are the most important skills, I think that, um, uh, you know, millinery sort of, you know, really changing at the moment, we're having to stop and have a little bit of a rethink. And, um, you know, for myself, I've been thinking about, um, you know, how sustainable is my business? Um, And so, uh, You know, yeah, I'm giving a lot of thought to that at the moment and I would encourage other people to do that if you're wanting to become a milliner, that you should really put that on on your list to sort of think about further.
0: So uh, once a student learns a particular technique, what's your advice for someone about transitioning that into their own work?
1: Now, that's a very good question, Lauren. That is a very good question because... um, you know, I'm sure we've often seen people do um, a particular workshop and often workshops skills based around a, a particular sort of style of hat. You know, uh, everyone wants to complete the course with finished product and that product often looks like the tutor's hat. Um, and uh, so what advice do I give people to um, adapt those techniques to create something new, which I think that they really need to do to um develop their their own sort of style. So they can make a hat, hat and sell it as a um, a piece that is designed by Lauren Ritchie or, you know, whoever's done the course. Um, in doing a course, people are learning how, you know, a material works in a certain way. And so a challenge would be, once they've finished that ribbon beret course or that bundle trim course, is to... Perhaps you know use the same materials because you know materials you know respond um, differently. But use the same material, um, but set yourself the challenge to make a completely different design because it's you know you're learning a technique and you want to be able to use that technique to create your own de- designs. So you need to sort of set yourself that that task so you can so you can claim that. Design it as your own and it you know it's that's that's the joy that's the enjoyable bit really i think that's that's the cream of being a milliner is coming up with new designs and yes you have plenty of failures i can tell you but um, you know when you have success you think ah oh, oh yes and then you can sort of take it further in 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 another direction but i know it's challenging and some people say i'm not creative um I think if you if you want to set yourself up uh, you know selling your own designs you need to take the bull by the horns there <laughs> make it your own <laughs> make it your own yeah yeah absolutely and um
0: in the last while well, we're turning into the 18 month mark of covid impacting um globally um and it's changed many landscapes how has this impacted your collections your teaching um what changes have you made to adapt to the current climate
1: well the first thing that you you know probably people who sort of follow me are probably aware of is that you know I've been presenting courses on Zoom and uh, that was a real learning curve for me. I'm a completely um, untechnical sort of person and uh, my IT partner was living in another part of the state at the time so I was home alone for four months and I thought oh my god I've got to work out how to do this myself but with the help of some other milliners like um, Catherine Ellen and uh, Sandy Aslett and uh, Lena Stein, um, we all helped each other out and did little test runs and, um, you know, gave each other ideas. No, you've got to move your camera in a different direction. Your camera needs to be here. And oh, you've got to download this. And Anyway, got there in the end and, um, <laughs> you know, bought some equipment on the way. I couldn't buy a webcam because everywhere was sold out of webcams. But anyway, um, started presenting Zoom classes. So I enjoyed the, um, the challenge and I also enjoyed um, connecting with other people around the world um mm-hmm. all through my sort of, computer screen so that was one way um, another way is uh, with my collection I mean I didn't have a collection last year 2020 but I will have one this year um, but uh, one of the things I also focused on was um you know my own professional development which I really have not allowed myself much time for in the last 25 years but there was plenty of time last year so um I did some professional development in terms of, you know, my own business and working out where my focus was and um, uh, working out what I was interested in and where I wanted to go and what the essence of my um, business was. Um, And then sort of more recently, um, actually I'm still doing it now, but I am loving it is um, a course on sort of sustainability in fashion that's um, run by Claire Press, who some of you might be familiar with um, a, a journalist and educator in um, sustainable fashion. And um, it's really making me uh, think about where I want to go and, and what I want to do with my business in the future. I mean, we're, we're all sort of, you know, becoming aware that um, if we're not already aware that, you know, there is a, um, a climate sort of, crisis a climate challenge and, and fashion is a contributor to that in the amount of um, fashion that goes into uh, landfill and the amount that we sort of consume and I think oh how many Louise McDonnell hats are <laughs> heading off to landfill and what am I sort of supporting here so um, I'm thinking sort of I'm feeling inspired by doing this course and I'm feeling really inspired about how I can sort of you know, restructure my business to be able to um, operate more sustainably. So, you know, looking at things about, what you know, what materials am I using and what processes are involved in those materials? What about the workforce who creates those materials? What sort of packaging do I have? You know, what, am I, what, what processes am I using that are contributing to carbon footprint or global warming? And what can I do to slow that down or, um, yeah, That's very interesting. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Um, But you know, I I think that it's challenging, and um, and probably a lot of you are sort of listening to this. um, Maybe some of you have given it much more thought than I have. Some maybe not so much. But you know, millinery. I mean, yes, we're a small sort of. part of the you know the global fashion chain but we're all contributing in our own way to global warming and me as a fashion consumer I mean I love clothes I love clothes I love going clothes shopping (laughs) but um, what was one of the statistics in the course it said Australian women buy on average 27 kilos of clothes a year and throw away 23 kilos and I thought yeah that's probably me although I don't throw away that that many I've, I've got a big wardrobe but Whereas um, Italian women, on average, um, buy 15 kilos a year. So that's a bit of a difference. I thought, ah, well, you know, quality, reinventing. Um, Yeah, so it's it's making me think about my own choices as a consumer, but also my choices as uh, someone who runs a a fashion business, really, and and what I can do to um, educate myself, change my business, and educate my customers. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah so interesting and challenging
0: Mm. yes absolutely and you touched on their quality of workmanship quality of fashion products Um, and this always has a correlation to pricing Um, how do you approach pricing not necessarily specifics but just as a general philosophy and um, ensuring that you're making a
1: living from the luxury accessories that you make yeah well um, that's a good question it's you know, that's why I'd recommend anyone who's starting out at business get some financial or accounting advice on, on how to charge and what you should be charging. When I first started out, I did do um, some one or two workshops that were sort of quite helpful, you know, giving me advice of, about how I can um, price my sort of work. Um, but you know I have made a living from this business over these years I've had to make a living I've wanted to make a living Um, and initially I wasn't charging enough for my work and um, students have realized that working seven days a week and and earning below the minimum wage is not sort of it is not sustainable (laughs) Um, (laughs) emotionally um, physically so um, more recently I I went to um, a workshop Back in the day that was run by craft the craft Council I think it was in or craft Victoria or something gave me a good sort of starting point to how to, to work out my business in terms of you know all the things to consider um, you needed to have an idea of your you know annual expenses to be able to work out how you needed to incorporate them in, into your pricing um, but you know it is essential otherwise yeah you're not going to be able to make a living and also you're, you're affecting the, the whole market really if there's so many people underselling um, themselves um, in the millinery market, then you know, you're underselling the, 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 the millinery trade really, I think. Um, as my hats have got more expensive over the years, um, you know, people, I find that people, if you can't find people to spend the money on uh, your hats or they're telling you that they're too cheap, then you, they're not your customer. You need to find other other customers who are able to who appreciate the work that you do and the quality. Uh, if people try and bargain you down, then um, you need to turf them as customers or educate them. Really, and and people people are open to be educated. Yeah. Um, I can think of a few things that I've. <laughs> And the customers over the years. And what, what might a
0: few, a few little oh. snippets be that you could offer a customer who maybe is challenging you on um, what is, uh, you know, you're producing, let's generalise, a handmade custom one-off piece and they've walked in and commented on the expense of the objects. Um,
1: well, I, you know, I might explain, you know, how many hours or what's sort of hourly rate they think that I, I might um, uh deserve or not deserve I know what I deserve but um uh you know suggesting to them that if they're wanting a discount then I'm going to have to discount um the hourly rate that I pay myself or if they want a discount I can take something off the hat um which what would they like to lose from the hat um I remember someone who was you know fairly you know obviously well off said oh can you do it any cheaper and I just said why why oh can't you afford it and um she obviously could afford it
0: and with your clients that come to you um for those i'm mean, i'm very familiar with your process mm-hmm. but for those who maybe not so um do you create collections how does someone come to you for a custom order what does that process look like in a regular non-covid time
1: in a regular non-covid time well i work out i i um create a, a collection for the for the um, for the season, which is normally spring. I, I used to do a winter collection, but really I don't have enough for the winter customers. So I'd create a, a collection for the spring. And um, when the customer comes in, um, if it's a new client, um, I ask them whether they've been to my website so they can see the sort of work that I do because I want to save myself time and I want to save them time. Because um, if they see my work and it's not, uh, you know, they don't it doesn't appeal to them that's sort of fine and um, you know I can sort of direct them sort of else, elsewhere so when they go to my website they can see the sort of work they do and they can also see the price of my work so they've got a little bit of an idea already what that what they're going to be paying um, and then when they come in we try on things from the range as a starting point and um, once I've the outfit that they might want to team it up with talk about you know what would suit the outfit what suits them and what sort of you know variations can be made to um the original sort of um starting point or, or hat that i've tried on their head uh, and then we go from there and then they always come back for a fitting i find that's a really um, important process communication with your client is key and uh, so when they come back from the for the fitting, they can sort of, you know, see the hat half made on their head and they can see how it feels on their head. And, um, you know, it's an opportunity for them to say, oh, look, you know, I'm not sure about this or I'm not sure about that. Um, Normally it goes pretty well, but if I I can see someone's not looking sort of um, too confident, I definitely encourage them to sort of speak their mind because, you know, I say, look, now's the time I can do something about it. I can't do anything about it when you come to pick it up. Um, and uh, I can, unless they want a completely new colour or something. I thought, <laughs> we decided that in the first consultation. Yeah, so then it goes from there. So generally with that process, um, people are very sort of happy with the outcome. Of course, with on you know people ordering online and going through that process online, you know I find it a lot more difficult. You know because online you can't see the proper sort of you know colour selection on a computer, so. Sometimes it's posting out samples of swatches of colors, um, but if they don't come in, you can't see give advice about whether it's sort of going to suit them. You can a little bit in terms of whether their height or the shape of their face that you can tell um, from the screen, but uh, just standing there and having it on their head and showing them how to wear it properly, um, the um, in-person fitting is the one that works best.
0: And um, one strategy which you use, which I think is really helpful, is if you have them there with the hat on their head in the right spot to take a photo of them wearing mm. the hat. I think that is a really good safety stop for yourself because once they walk out the door, it's up to yes. them to be able to feel confident about placing the hat.
1: Yes, too many times, Lauren, <laughs> I have. Not that I go to the racetrack often, but because a lot of my customers have, you know, been people who go to the races. But you know, too many times I've been to the racetrack and I've seen that they've had the hat on back the front or you know tipped back on the back of their head. So yes, I learned from that. And yes, as you say, take, getting them to take a photo on their camera with it in the right position and encouraging them to um, refer to that when they're getting dressed in the morning or the hairdresser uh, um, has a look at it and you know fingers crossed. <laughs> in the correct position
0: so what's some upcoming projects we can look forward to seeing
1: with louise mcdonald well i'm i'm working on my um spring collection um (laughs) and uh, i've got another course being released with hat academy i think it's due in august um again with some um bundle mats so we're doing some caps and berets from bundle mats without the use of blocks so um, a lot of the Hat Academy courses are based around not having to buy. I love hat blocks and very envious of some of the beautiful ones that I see um, on uh, Instagram and, and social media. But I'm aware that people, when they first start out, you know, it, it's a bit of a business, you know, buying the equipment and that sort of thing. So um, with Hat Academy, I've tried to devise courses where, you know, you don't have to go and buy um, specifics of block. So the Cats um, and Berets is, is coming out with Hat Academy in August. I've got a few things coming up with um, Spring Fashion Week, Melbourne Spring Fashion Week in September, being prepared for in-person or online, <laughs> <laughs> however our restrictions and our sort of COVID infections go. Something else that's uh, coming up is the uh, Millinery.info Millinery Make It campaign. In fact, I think we're right in the middle of it, aren't we? And yes. uh, there is the opportunity to win, there's three free spots actually that um, I'm offering for my Ribbon Beret course on April the 8th and 9th. It's a a course, a virtual course by Zoom. So if you subscribe to the millinery.info newsletter and participate in the Millinery Maker campaign, we will be choosing a winner on August the 1st. And um, if it's you, I look forward to seeing you on my Ribbon Beret course. Otherwise, you're very welcome to come and register in the course to my learnmillinery.com website
0: fantastic thank you so much for joining me for today's podcast louise it was great to have you back on talking hats with me
1: lauren i've loved it thank you very much (laughs) it's so nice to have a chat with you and to um, have a chat with everyone else out there come and connect with me on my social media louise mcdonald milliner on instagram or facebook look forward to seeing you there
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Millinery at with Louise. I'd like to thank our Patreon podcast sponsors, The Essential Hat, That Millinery, Hat Academy, Hatter's Millinery Supplies, Lifted Millinery, Hat Mags, Marie D'Antony Millinery, Louise MacDonald Milliner, The Millinery Association of Australia, and Hats by Leco. You can find a link to each of their businesses in their show notes, either in your podcast app or on our website. You or your business could show your support by becoming a Patreon of Millionary Info. There are two tiers available. A podcast sponsor, which means your business or event is mentioned in our podcast, link included on our website and in the monthly newsletter. This starts from just $15 per month. The other option is a supporter tier, which is from just $5. It's for those who would like to quietly show their support, but ensure that we can keep producing the content you see here on Millionary Info. If you have any questions about becoming a Patreon, I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, to sign up, visit www.patreon.com forward slash millineryinfo. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Thank you for joining me for this episode, and I look forward to talking hats with you again soon.